Vishti means the witness. And Drashti means what is seen. In the beginning of spiritual life, in the beginning of understanding ourselves as something different from the everyday, the first stage is to understand yourself as the witness of the events of your life and everything that's happening around you. There's something higher in that, which is not you as the witness, not you as the seer, but you as the seen. When we conduct our lives in such a way that God is attracted to seeing us, now you're starting to make some spiritual progress. Just knowing that you're not the body is a very nice first step. But an even higher stage is when you are not making yourself the center. It's not about you as the witness to the phenomena of creation around you, but you as the humble servant who acts in such a way that Krishna himself would love to come and be with you. That's the mood of chanting. The mood of chanting is not, I'm going to become self-realized. The mood of chanting is, let me serve Krishna with such love that he will be pleased. significant shift from being the witness that the person who sees to becoming just that which is seen. So you get a sense that this chanting has nuances to it. It's not just a mechanical function. There's an internal state that can be cultivated over time. It's an acquired taste, if you will. Chanting is an acquired taste. And to chant properly is a great accomplishment. Very, very proud. It's, shall we say, uh, a concern that the kirtan culture is such that it crosses a certain line into entertainment sometimes. And it's about being... the focus, the center. (laughs) And uh, as opposed to an offering, an expression of love that we are doing together. Anyway, that's that's my pet peeve. So, yes? This might not be the appropriate moment to make this comment, but last week you mentioned something about Gayatri Mantra was Mm. originally considered secret didn't chant it like yes. you were taught it you didn't, and it wasn't chant it was a secret mantra so I at Ananda Ashram when I was just there over the weekend I was asking one of the people there this guy Heidi I don't know him but anyway I was saying you know because we had just chant, um, we had just chanted it that morning um, with someone that was teaching there and he said that he knows that in some of the older scriptures it talks about this time period, the Kali Yuga, as mantras will be bought and sold in the Mahabharata, I think he said, that, that it says in there that at this time mantras will be like bought and sold. I mm. thought that was interesting. Yes, um, yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the 
the Mahabharata and also the Bhagavad Purana, Srimad Bhagavatam, in the uh, 11th canto, speaks about the symptoms. And this is uh, a forecasting. The Bhagavatam dates from thousands of years ago, prior to the current age of Kali. And it is describing what the conditions of life will be like in the world we know today. It talks about machinery. It talks about stress and tension. It talks about the diminution of life because of all of the pressures around us. It talks about how compassion will dry up and disappear. It talks about the kind of devastation. It, talk, it talks about environmental concerns. Now, thousands of years ago, the word environment wasn't even there. But the conditions that it's describing in the future conform with what we would call... Uh, climate change and also the deterioration of spiritual practices to a point where it becomes commodified and sold like another product so yeah that's that's quite true so be careful be careful in your chanting this is a, a great privilege to to chant the names of god it's a Uh, a practice to be approached with with some dignity and composure, with some sense of formality. Let's go around the room and uh, just uh, kind of say hello to everybody. Let's start. I usually start on my left, so I'll start on my right this time. John, you you get to go first. Sure. Just say hello. Say hello and anything, maybe a realization that you've had this week or something of interest. Um, my name is John. Um, interest. Everyone gets kind of think about <laughs> Yes, I, I sprung um, that on you. I'm sorry. I, I think actually I could say that I think that I had a wonderful holiday. It was a great time. I think it, it always, you come back with uh, a lot of different emotions and feelings. Yeah, holidays, that's what holidays are for. They're for kind of regrouping and getting back with family. There's a place, an important place for that if it's, if it's handled well. I know, Michael, you had a bit of a difficulty with your family and the, the menu at the Thanksgiving meal. And that's probably, you're not probably the only one with that difficulty. So. It was my last Thanksgiving. <laughs> I wanted to be at another ashram. Mm-hmm. Me too. Not the plug <laughs> or anything. Yeah, me too. But I really, it was like, it was, I had been planning to see with my parents for the last year and a half, saying, no, this isn't a fact, they are doing this for six years now, mm-hmm. and I'm getting to the point where I can't mm-hmm. be around this much death anymore and yeah. consumption. It, it, it does get awkward. Yeah. It gets very awkward, and... and um, it takes all the, uh, sometimes all of the stamina and, uh, and insight that you can muster to love people whose habits we may find uncomfortable. So, yeah, you have to do that. It's part of Dharma, part of our Dharma. You want to say... Anything? How was how was Ananda? I'm Julie. 
<laughs> and I already got to say my thought of the week, you did. sort of. And um, my son Jules, some of you know Jules, and I taught a retreat uh, at Ananda Ashram, which is an annual retreat for Jivamukti. This is the fifth year that Jules and I have taught it. Prior to that, Sharon and David taught it. I forget, I always count the number of years incorrectly, so I never, I stopped trying, but I believe it's around 10, 11 years, something like that altogether, or more maybe, I forget. Anyway, more than that, anyway. But it's a, week, it's a vegan meal that starts at the ashram with a vegan meal, and then we have the whole weekend of asana classes and teachings that they give at the ashram anyway, um, Sanskrit classes and music and um, performances. Like every night we do a Vedic fire ceremony and meditation and chanting, and then there's usually some sort of music, and each night is a little bit different. And um, their specialty there at that ashram is uh, the study of Sanskrit language and and also um, seeing old friends in here. <laughs> and um, and classical Indian arts, music and dance primarily. And um, it was it was really nice. I have to say it's one of the first weekends in a long time that the weather was really usually it's like cloudy rain. This time we had this beautiful sunny day and it was it was very nice. Lovely. Very nice. Beautiful group of people yeah. and people that work at the ashram. But you know, they are not vegan there, so while we're there they're they serve all the food and vegan, but you know there were some a few people that were there for the retreat were asking me a lot of questions like ghee, the use of ghee in the fire ceremony, and why is there milk in the refrigerator? And I don't know. So it came up even there, so can't get away from it. Well, so mark your calendars for next Thanksgiving. Yeah. And maybe we'll we'll do a field trip. We'll all go up together. Yes. How's that? I, I apologize for having not no, been able to. No, he was to supposed to come and then needed to cancel at the last minute. Everybody was very understanding, so. Oh, no. I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, when duty calls. Uh, we're not going to be able to get to everybody, so Rodney, I apologize. Let's get to you and to you next week, and I'll just ask one or two people, some, somebody from the left side of the field here. How about yourself? Would you like to say hello? Sure. So we're all recovering one way or another from Thanksgiving. <laughs> okay, welcome. Welcome. And uh, your name? I'm Carolyn. Hi. Hi. Um, actually, like, the more I practice, I'm present, you know, this time of the year is always, like, it just comes upon me, the stresses and emotions of a year end, marking of a year end, and family. And, um, like, my breath. So, uh, I don't know if it's present or pre like just breathing. I'm so connected with my breathing that it, I have that as a tool to bring me calmness, or you know, it's powerful. Like, mm. just feel very connected.
Mm. Lovely. So. Lovely. Congratulations. Yeah, like it's my home tool. It starts with breathing, it ends with breathing. Breathing is what carries our yoga practice. And as long as you're breathing, you might as well chant Hare Krishna. Mm. You know, that's myself when I chant the mantra, each each breath for me is about four mantras right now. And you can extend that. I mean there's a a slow exhalation that occurs and, and you can pace yourself in such a way that there's a rhythm that occurs with the breathing and the chanting. They become a kind of dance together. And um, so, lovely. Thank you for your example of connecting with breathing. Um, Kim is always asking, why don't you have kirtan anymore? So let's chant for a while. Yeah. Speaking of breathing. Wow. All right, so here's a little chanting. So I'll chant the mantra one time, and then we'll all chant responsibly together. How does that sound? All right. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. Krishna Krishna Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare Hare Let's try it again. Hare Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare
kirtan is a communal activity. We all chant together. And there's a call and response function there. And um, the value of kirtan versus japa, which is a more personal meditation, is that <laughs> when you've got the right musicians together and you have the rhythm going, uh, it becomes something quite joyous. And there's this kind of spontaneous feeling that emerges and sometimes erupts, which is that you want to get up and dance. So you'll often see in kirtan that there's a dance function there. And that's quite spontaneous. It's not choreographed. It's not rehearsed. If you go to Vrindavan, Krishna's village, you'll see kirtan going on at every street corner. It's not a large place. It's only about 25 or 26 square miles. But there are something like 5,000 temples in this town. And uh, it's all about chanting. <laughs> Life in Vrindavan is all about chanting. And you'll walk down the street and there'll be people dancing and chanting. And instead of saying hello, people are saying, Jai Radhe! And every word is a song and every step is a dance. And there's this celebration constantly of the soul's union with Krishna in love and devotion. It's an extraordinary thing to see. We'll get into that. We have our moments. Sometimes we get kirtan people visiting. So maybe when we have our next potluck dinner, which I think we're about due for, aren't we? Yeah, we'll do that. We'll, do that. we'll figure out when we're going to do that. We're in the fourth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. Um, and we're at a very important verse in the fourth chapter. Um, very important verse. This is one of those verses in the Gita that if you want to know Bhagavad Gita, it's critically important that you know the fourth chapter, verse number two, on page 183 in the Bhaktivedanta edition of Bhagavad Gita called Gita As It Is. Uh, let's chant this verse together. And then we'll talk about it. Page 183, chapter 4, verse 2. Evam parampara praptam. You please repeat after me. Evam parampara praptam. Imam raja sayo vidu. Imam Rajarsayo Vidu Sakalena Mahata Sakaleneha Mahata Yogo Nashta Parantapa Yogo Nashta Parantapa Evam Parampara Praptam Evam Parampara Praptam Imam Rajarsayo Vidu Imam Rajarsayo Vidu Sakali Neha Mahata Sakali Neha Mahata Yogo Nashta Parantapa Yogo Nashta Parantapa So 
At the end of a line, if a word ends in H and there's a diacritic dot under that H, there's almost a kind of a stutter of breath. So it's if you do, technically. Uh, if, if you're not able to do that, it's okay. We're not uh, looking for an academically accurate reading of these verses. But technically, you're correct. A dot under an H at the end of a line becomes a kind of double breath, viduhu. So in this case, because we're following a melody, it's not so obvious. All right, would you like to try? Evam param pura praptam Imam Raja Sayo Vidu Sakalini Hamahata Yoga Nastak Param Tapa. Very nice, thank you. Anyone else like to try? Hmm, no brave souls today, eh? Okay. Rodney. Evam param para praptam. Imam raja sayo vidu. Sakalani hamahata. Yoga nastak parantapa. Nicely done. Nice kind of energy to that. Yes, I noticed. Well done. Thank you. Evam parampara praptam imam rajarsayo vidu sa kaleneha mahata yogo nashtak parantapa. This supreme science was thus received through the chain of disciplic succession. Parampara is the word. And the saintly kings understood it in that way. But, in course of time, the succession was broken, and thus the science, as it is, appears to be lost. Critically, critically important verse in the Bhagavad Gita. What, uh, what Krishna is describing here for Arjuna is essentially the uh, channel by which wisdom comes into the world. There are two things, we discussed this last time, two paths to knowledge. One is aroha panta, which is an ascending method, meaning that through our own empiric research, our sensory perception, our own intellectual investigation, we will reveal something, some secret of the workings of the world. That process is hampered by the limitations of our senses, the limitations of our intellect, the fact that evidence is constantly changing, and the fact that there are defects in the empiric process of discovery. It's never perfect. The other method, the one that is 
described by the parampara system is avaroha pantha. Uh, from, there's a relationship between the word avaroha and the word avatar, meaning one who descends, who comes into the world. Right? Avaroha pantha, pantha or path, means knowledge that comes into the world from a higher source. That knowledge is not subject to the same defects as the information we gather from sensory perception, analysis, intellectual exercise. That knowledge comes from a different place. And it's described, uh, the example is given, that if you uh, want the ripest mango at the top of the tree, Lingera mangoes grow at the the top of the mango tree, where they get the most exposure to sunlight and and fresh air, Uh, a chain of people climb the mango tree and very carefully take those ripest mangoes and pass them down from one person to the next to the next until they arrive unblemished at the base of the tree. Knowledge of the creation beyond what we can perceive of it comes down in that fashion through a chain of teachers Over the generations, this parampara system has included some of the greatest thinkers in Indian philosophical and and religious history. Shankaracharya, Madhvacharya, Ramanujacharya, Vishnu Swami, Nimbarka, Bhaktivinoda Thakur, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati, some of the greatest teachers, Buddha, coming in this chain of teachers... each generation inspired by what has been learned from the past. Spiritual knowledge, knowledge of the self beyond matter, is not like collecting stamps. You know, it's not some kind of calcified body of knowledge that is just passed along like a treasure box. Knowledge of the self is a living, breathing entity. The Bhagavad Gita is non-different from Krishna. It's alive. It's pulsating with life. So each generation of teacher in this disciplic line contributes some new understanding and insight into this primordial wisdom which comes into the world at the dawn of time. We'll be reading more about that in the verses coming. Actually, in the first verse of this chapter, Krishna described that he first instructed the science at the dawn of time to the sun god Vivaswan and from Vivaswan to uh, Ikshaku and Manu so the disciple teachings are passed down over the course of cosmic time now if you were to tell a, a Sanskritist today or an Asian studies professor or someone who teaches comparative religion that we are studying something that is exactly as it was at the dawn of time, they'd be rather skeptical. There are rather amusing examples, for example, in biblical history, of the kind of mistakes that have been made when the Bible was transcribed and passed along from generation to generation. So there are some uh, rather famous examples of handwritten manuscript Bibles where the scribes, who after all are human and sometimes 
If they're working late, they may make a mistake. There are some editions of medieval manuscripts of the Bible that say, Thou shalt kill. Thou shalt covet thy neighbor's wife. So sometimes if a word is missed, just a small word, the whole thing can be turned upside down. And in Sanskrit, the same is true. If you change even one diacritic, one accent on one word, it'll completely change the sense of the word. I don't remember the Sanskrit, but there's a story of um, uh, the demigod Indra who was um, menaced by um, many enemies and went to a rishi and said, I want you to perform a fire ceremony and chant the mantras and destroy all of my enemies. So this um, rishi, who was not quite perfected in, in his recitation of the Sanskrit texts, uh, chanted, began chanting the mantras. When he came to the critical moment, instead of chanting the word with a short A, he chanted the word with a long A. And instead of erasing the enemies of Indra, he created one great enemy of Indra. <laughs> so just a small misreading, mispronunciation can cause great havoc. That's where disease comes from, that story, right? Perhaps. I don't recall all the consequences of that mistake. But we, we know the same experience from our own readings of books that we're familiar with. How many different editions of The Great Gatsby come out, or of War and Peace, or a new translation of the Iliad, or of uh, the poems of Ovid, how many different translations and how many claim to be the definitive translation. And they will show you short differences and small little nuances of change that, uh, that have occurred over time. So the, um, this is an example I'm uh, fond of using. The teacher said, that student is a fool. The teacher comma, said that student, comma, is a fool. That little comma just completely reverses the meaning. So how do we know that the teachings we are studying here are the actual teachings that Krishna gave Arjuna 5,000 years ago? How can we be so sure? Are you sure? Well, the difference is that the Parampara system is a kind of guarantee that the teachings are being passed along not rote, not mechanically. They're being passed along by realized teachers. To be considered a link in this Parampara chain of teachers requires very, very profound personal uh, achievements. The teachers in this disciplic line, and we'll talk more about this. I have a, a, a session coming up with Ruth Lauer here about the teacher-disciple relationship, and we'll talk more about what is a what are the qualifications of a of an authentic guru, of an authentic teacher, and to be someone who is recognized as an acharya. The word acharya will be coming up later in this chapter as well. Acharya means one who teaches by example. Not just by precept, but by example. You have to walk your talk. To be a part of this disciplic line, to actually be um, 
solidly situated in, in, in spiritual wisdom requires not just an academic familiarity with the texts, but realization of the meaning of those texts and the implementation of that understanding in your own personal daily life. A teacher in disciplic succession must be above all criticism. Their personal example has to be impeccable. Absolutely impeccable. I know it's a fashion to get you know, spiritual names and you know, the yoga culture we could talk about sometime and the way it's being implemented in the West. But at least so far as the tradition is concerned, going back with roots in India, going back to old school, to be a part of this disciplic line was a very, very serious thing. Impeccable behavior, impeccable knowledge of the texts, and all of the qualities of a devotee, as described in the Bhagavad Gita, coming up later, have to be manifest in full. A devotee, there are 26 principal qualities of a devotee of God. Humble, compassionate, clean, learned in scripture, uh, above reproach, um, attracted to living in a holy place, completely free of ego. I mean, there are these very, very carefully delineated qualities of someone who can represent the disciplic succession, who can represent wisdom in the world, How many times have we been disappointed because someone has presented herself or himself as representing wisdom in the world only to find out later that they were unable to maintain that position for one reason or another? What are the consequences? Well, here it's described. Sakalenaha mahata yogo nashta parantapa In the course of time, the succession was broken and therefore the science as it is appears to be lost. Why would the succession become broken? Why would these teachings, the, the transmission of wisdom in the world, why would that line of transmission, transmission get broken? What are your thoughts? What are some reasons? What's the obvious reason why the effective transmission of teaching would be lost? Meaning? Some some ego enters into it? Is that what you're referring to? Mm -hmm. Okay. What is the consequence of ego entering into the teaching? Well, not considering the impact it has on all the other people. Okay. Not considering the impact that uh, your ego will have on those people hearing you speak. Yes, that's, that's very good. Other ways of explaining why the disciple line would be lost or broken? It's hard. It's hard. It's hard work. Hard work to be? To maintain the relative principles of the devotees 
or an acharya, and sometimes it comes a career for some people. They don't they have the best intentions when they start out, but then it turns into a business, and then it starts to maintain those disciplined lines. Wow. And they want to follow it, so they kind of cut corners because it's okay. hard to teach the traditions. So this is another way that the ego would enter into it. If someone who may have a very comprehensive understanding and familiarity with the teachings uses those teachings as a business. That would be one way. Because once those other ulterior motives enter into the formula, it sullies things. It's very, very difficult. It's a very, very difficult thing, especially today when teachers are not showing up in a village, sitting down under a tree and just starting to teach and people will send their children and they'll come themselves and they'll sit and get those teachings. And the way it used to be was that you would bring an offering. It was a voluntary thing, sort of like the basket, I guess, but they would come with either some cloth or some, a, a sack of rice or whatever they could afford. If they came from a, an aristocratic family, they, they might bring money or jewelry. If they came from a less uh, well-off family, they'd bring uh, a piece of fruit. Whatever someone could afford. These days we call it tuition. But they would bring whatever they could afford to bring. The basic reason why the disciplic succession is broken is that the teachers representing that succession lose their qualifications. And the teachings are changed. That's the danger. The danger is that the teachings will change. If the manner with which one approaches teaching wisdom is not from a place of extreme profound humility and lack of ego and pridelessness, the tendency will be to change those teachings. For what reasons? Well, to demonstrate one's own personal prowess as a teacher. Or perhaps not even from something quite so nefarious, but just because circumstances around us change. To be able to migrate the teachings of something so many thousands of years old into a contemporary language is a very, very difficult task. Very, very difficult task. The conditions of the world that we know are nothing like what they were thousands of years ago when these teachings were first enunciated. How do we know how to apply those teachings from a world vastly unlike the one we're in to life today? Frank. So you're saying, which is the greater risk? Transmigrating those teachings into some contemporary language or remaining too conservative in what used to be? Is that the question, pretty much? Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a good question. You know, I'm not sure that one is more dangerous. They're both dangerous. There's a danger in orthodoxy. The danger of orthodoxy is that you don't recognize the conditions of the world today. You have to be able... 
Has anyone been to the top of the Empire State Building? Right. Do you know, have you, have you felt the building sway? You can actually feel it. The Empire State Building sways something like 10 feet in any direction. And that's because the steel pilings are intentionally created with enough flexibility to be able to bend with the wind. If, they, if, if the building were not able to move with some of those currents of wind, it would break. Okay? We have to have that kind of flexibility. You can't be so rigid in your presentation of teachings that there's no room for adaptation to changing environments and conditions around us. Yeah, John. To the first point, and that is what you're saying, the teachings have to remain the same in the text being passed, and the teacher needs to be disciplined with that. But when you hear it, The question becomes, when does our attempt to apply those teachings on our own merit become cross over that line into speculative imagination where we might actually be misusing those teachings because there's some part of us that really doesn't want to accept them on their own terms. I mean, these teachings essentially say that you cannot know God without becoming very self-disciplined. Not everybody wants to hear that. Not everybody wants to hear that in order to know Krishna, if you want to know this presence of the divine that is in your heart, an, an absolute ontological reality, you're walking around with God in your heart. If you want to know that presence, there's an absolute requirement, which is to become self-disciplined. There are things you're just going to have to give up. People don't like to hear that. We've, we've talked about this before. It's a big question among yoga teachers. How much Dharma talk before we go into the asanas? Because we, if, we, you know, if we really tell people what the teachings are all about, they won't come back. It's not good for business. Here we are again, back in that dilemma when the teaching becomes a business. Very, very difficult to balance these things out. Yeah. But then how come the teachers that kind of stick to the Orthodox are the ones that we love the most? Sharon David, Bhagavad, you. Well, we need, we need examples. We need exemplars. You know, all of us, we need someone to look up to who is, you know, towing the line to be able to say, okay, I might not be able to do it, but now at least I know where the bar is set. I know where I'm supposed to get to. And here's someone who's doing that. So I have someone I can follow. This is, you know, my own experience with my teacher, is that I saw someone who walked his talk. Prabhupada... loved Krishna. There wasn't anything that he did that wasn't motivated by that love for Krishna. 
And boy, was he disciplined. Oh my gosh, was he disciplined. He slept maybe three hours a night, maybe. You know, way, rise at about two o'clock, he'd be chanting all his beads, and he'd be sitting down doing his translations and commentaries of the Sanskrit text. He published a hundred books in his lifetime. A hundred books. You know, 300, 400 pages long. Because he had that discipline, he was able, he was able to do that. Yeah. Isn't your teacher a good example of someone? I remember you started with Java, how he thought 96 per day and then he lowered the story, he lowered the number of rounds? Well, 64 rounds. There, there, there are indications in the Sanskrit texts that uh, <laughs> I believe it's Narada who asks his father, Brahma, the first created being, Narada being one of the mental children of Brahma. Uh, it says, how many times do we have to chant Hare Krishna in order to become fully self-realized? And uh, Brahma gives a number there. I don't remember exactly the number. And I think this is in the Kali Santarana Upanishad. And if you do the math, it works out to be about 64 rounds a day for 40 years or something. So in the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition, there was a prescription when my teacher's teacher, Bhaktisiddhanta, uh, opened his mission called the Gaudiya Mat in India back in about 19, in the 19, early 1920s, I believe he opened his mission. Um, the prescription was that full-time students, if you're going to live in the Mat, in the ashram, you would chant 64 rounds a day. Now, it, it takes me about an hour and a half to two hours to chant 16 rounds. So that's something like six hours of chanting every day. And they did it. They would do it. For people living outside the ashram, the recommendation was 16 rounds. Now, when we started class today, we did one round. So you can envision doing that 16 times as your daily meditation. So, so to me, that's, that's my interpretation of that is that he realized current day that people aren't going to have six hours to dedicate and have a payroll job wasting money. So he, he made it more modern and reduced it back four or five hours. Yes, there's an example of a realized change in the tradition by someone qualified to make such a change. Yeah. Exactly. So the orthodoxy is needed, and then we need the other side as well, to come back to your question. We need to be able to re-envision the teachings, because the world around us is quite different today. But I think, to that point as well, when, when one is allowed and takes upon itself to interpret their own way, they may decide when they're done or when they've achieved a certain place. The, cha- the changes can occur without breaking the parampara, provided those changes are agreed upon by the community of devotees. No one should be working unilaterally. That's dangerous. Don't try practicing your yoga alone. Yoga was never meant to be practiced alone. Certainly not bhakti. 
If the purpose of yoga is to come to know God within yourself and within all others, how can you possibly do that if you live in a vacuum? If we're going to be bringing that knowledge of devotion into the world, we have to be working in consortium with other like-minded yogis. That's called Sangha. When something is agreed upon by the devotional community as a whole, if it's embraced, what you have in that consensus is a check and balance system. Which is ideally why there are ashrams. I think yoga studios, those that are properly managed, are like ashrams in a way. They're a place to come together, to share your realizations, to talk about the things that are challenging you, to make friends among like-minded people, so that if there is some application of yoga teaching that needs discussion, you've got a place to go for that. So the great teachers in the Parampara, most of them established schools. They pretty much all established schools so that that kind of interaction could take place. And it's critically important. If you come for a yoga class and then you leave, you're missing 90% of what yoga is all about. If you come and you take your class and you go, you're scratching the surface. You're not really getting the full benefit of your practice. How can transfer? Yeah, how can transformation take place if everything is mechanical? You walk into a class, and you already know in your head what's going to happen, right? That's why you go to a particular teacher, because you like that particular teacher's style. So you're going in with this expectation of, yeah, I like that class. It'll be repeated again, and I'll like it again. So you've already set up certain parameters to the experience. (laughs) And where's the room for transformation there? So stretching that envelope, particularly in in the parts that become difficult, namely the discipline and the, uh, uh, the, the change of character behavior, the behavioral guidelines, are crucial. But nobody wants to hear about them. Nobody wants to know that you need to you know, become stricter about this and, and more careful about that. And, you know, this feels like why all these limitations? They're actually not limitations, they're liberating, but they feel like liber- limitations. It's quite the opposite. The more disciplined you become, the freer you become. The more disciplined you become, the freer you become. The senses are pulling every which way. Some restraint. Who's in charge here? Who's dictating the dialogue of your life? Are you or your senses in mind? Who's calling the shots? 
That's the message of the parampara. The message of the parampara is get your act together, keep your nose clean, and push on because what's waiting for you at the other end is greater than you could ever imagine. Greater than you can. It's the greatest adventure that the world has to offer. But just be prepared because it's going to upend your world. It's going to shift things around so dramatically. Thank you for breathing. Thank you for getting in touch with your breathing. You better start breathing. Because the changes are dramatic. They're quite dramatic. Yes, Rodney. Oh, thank you, Master Press. Every breath is love. I told you once before, but it's a drop of love inside you. It's a good uh, talk you gave before. I feel that also. But I want to speak about, when he says everything is great after, I just speak about finding before it comes to after, I would say, inside, if you talk about other things as you're in the self, that's like a goal you're looking for to finally find that's missing inside, something that is lost that you don't have yet. That's, that's your highest level from the practice from the beginning that came in all the years before that you made up the thought to go into yoga. And the thing, what you thought made up the highest level is your goal. And the answer is you'll find out and know who you are and he's talking about how great it is, it's true. Then you'll find all the things, Bhagavad Gita, everything beyond the books you ever read is the goal, is the secret. Thank you. It's a pleasure having you in the class with us. Evam parampara praptam imam rajarshayo vidu. It says here that um, saintly kings understood it in that way. Government officers, according to the Vedic tradition, should be guided by a council of, uh, of, of wise souls. Today we call it the cabinet. <laughs> but the cabinet in the Vedic tradition was comprised not of uh, academics and political advisors, but of realized beings, you know, highly evolved, spiritually progressive, dedicated, humble advisors. So in, in, in that sense, we're, we're not so much getting trained in our devotional yoga to become the political heads of state. Ideally, we become advisors to the heads of state, of government, of business, whatever it may be. Because we don't really want to get involved <laughs> in having to do those things. But ideally, what's happening here is that this is a training. It's a training ground. Imagine this, if you will. Set aside your own sense of your limitations and envision possibilities for what you might be 10 years down the road where you've become such a fine example yourself of instructor, where your knowledge has become so profound that people seek you out for advice on how to organize their employee populations, how to reform their economic system, how to 
be of greater benefit to their community, how to implement some kind of uh, service program. That's needed. When Prabhupada came, the way he described it was that he was coming to train a class of Brahmins, by which he meant spiritually evolved men and women who would then go out into society and have a spiritually positive influence on the activities of human culture. Now, maybe not everyone feels cut out for that, but don't exclude yourself from that possibility too quickly. I'm just saying. We're here for a reason, and my understanding is that the reason is so that we can become those individuals whom we are always hoping to find who will go out and change the world somehow. Right? Congratulations, you're it. Humility is a very, very powerful force. So is celibacy. That's another thing that people don't like to hear. But it's a fact. Control your sex life and you can become an extremely powerful person. This is subject for another class, but that, that impulse to experience that very uh, aggressive sense of satisfaction is uh, often called the anchor that keeps us bound to the repetition of birth and death. It's so powerful. Such a powerful thing. I always wonder, why? My gosh, why is it considered? In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says it's the all-devouring enemy, that sense of lust, by which he didn't mean just, you know, carnal intercourse. He was referring to a state of mind. But, uh, My understanding is to become spiritually progressive, to reach a place beyond where we are now so that we don't get stuck where we are. You have to be able to move away from the sense of yourself as this body. And anything undertaken without a sense of your true self will bind you to the sense that this is me. I'm experiencing this right now. I own this. It's mine. (laughs) That's the enemy. The enemy is anything that reinforces this myic sense, this artificial sense of ourselves, as being a product of material nature. That's the enemy that Krishna is referring to in the Bhagavad Gita. It's not sex per se. It's not other pursuits per se. It's the mentality that I am the one doing this, I am the one reaping the benefits from this, I am the one enjoying this, this is mine and I own it. No, you don't. If you own it, where is it tomorrow? (laughs) Where did it go? So, you know, I hear a lot of that talk, but I never hear the talk of procreation. Procreation. Um, What is that? 
Where does procreation fit in? Yeah. Well. You know, I think of like the Jewish religion, you know, there's a certain way of doing it, and it's very kind of separated from like this conversation. Right. So. Yeah, I, you know, I, I get into trouble when I start going down this path. Um, <laughs> because cause we're going to be here uh, late. Um, th- look, there's nothing in the Vedic culture that says partners should not relish being partners. Uh, I, I have personal experience of my spiritual master asking me, I would, practically every time I go to see him, he'd say, oh, it's nice to see you. How's your wife? It's like the first thing you'd want to know is, how's my wife? And I said, she's fine. And one time he said, well, that's good. Don't fight. He said, don't fight. He says, partners should love each other. Otherwise, the relationship becomes dry. Should or should? Should. They should love each other. Now, this from a sannyasi, this from a renunciant, you know, who's, who's recommending, love your partner. Don't, don't avoid that on some pretext of being detached, you know. But there are no, Encouragements? No, no, no. But like method, or there's no scripture on like uh, how to do it right. I mean, it's like you know the sun and the moon are aligned. I don't. I just maybe there isn't. Look, uh, what are you referring to? Like, the coming together, the common interest, or or maybe it's in that. Well. That's a rather late text, and it's not part of the Vedic library. Um, And it had a particular purpose historically that we could talk about. The the qualification is one of love and compassion and spiritual and, and, and cooperative spiritual progress. The issue is not how to do it. The question is, what are you doing before and after? How are you living your life together? Yeah, sure. And I, you know, some of the most spiritually advanced people I know have very healthy sex lives. It's it's not that they avoid being a loving partner. But what they have going for them is not the positions of the Kama Sutra. What they have going for them is a shared desire to love God. You know, you get that right and everything else falls into place. To say nothing of your sex life, how about simple conversation? When was the last time you had a really good conversation? <laughs> When, you know, the, the, the ability to communicate with someone. Sex is the easy part. It's a lot easier to, to bear your body than to bear your heart and mind. So what's being inculcated here is that much greater intimacy of joining together with other people in the search for God. 
When, when the Vedas talk about, you know, control your sex life, they're not saying eliminate your sex life. That's condemned. That, that, that's, that's scorned. There, there's a passage in the Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says, if you're attempting to progress spiritually and you're renouncing activities externally, but you're harboring the desire within yourself, you're nothing but a, that's hypocrisy. You're nothing but a pretender. That's not going to help you. You're going to end up doing it anyway and just feeling totally humiliated and embarrassed by it. You're going to live with guilt. <laughs> that's not recommended. That's not going to help spiritually. The, 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 uh, the, the, the kind of tongue-in-cheek way of describing that is someone who on a, uh, drinks water underwater while taking bath on a fast day. Now on a fast day you're not supposed to drink or eat. So you're taking your bath, but underwater you're drinking the water. <laughs> don't, don't deny yourself. That's not the prescription. The prescription is get it together. You know, we have to be practical. We're living in the, in the world. We have these bodies. But be realistic about it. Okay. Yeah. Sure, that's, 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 that's common to any authentic path. You know, you, to know, to, mo, to know God, you have to be so detached from selfish desires and hurtful desires and behavior that gets in the way of always remembering God. And that takes practice. It's not, it's, it's not a question of, of stopping completely. It's a question of putting things in proper balance, in good perspective. Is that how you would define self-discipline? Discipline is putting things in proper balance. Yes. In your life, in one's life. Yes, and it's different for each individual. For some people, eliminating... Uh, genital sex is the right way to go. I know some celibates who swear to me that it's not as difficult as people might imagine because they experience such fulfillment 
having the intimacy of this larger community around them where they are serving others. And, you know, I mean, I, I know what it feels like to be loved by someone who says, you know, you've really helped me. That, that's a very long-lasting kind of satisfaction. <laughs> so it, it, it can be done, but you shouldn't artificially try to do that. Okay, we're going to, Michael is going to do an RT. Uh, seeing where we go in these conversations, it really kind of, <laughs> and it really kind of goes on. Just getting, we're just getting started here. Um, yes, thank you. I'm sorry if we didn't have enough time for everyone's questions. Uh, the arti ceremony is traditional. It's a way of acknowledging Krishna in his form of Radha and Krishna, male and female, supreme personality. And um, so won't you join us up at the altar? We'll have the artist on
Tuesday. For a while it was Sunday mornings, but then we found out people liked their Sunday mornings. So we moved back to Tuesdays. And um, uh, the classes and the recordings are available online as podcasts. So you get to hear the discussions if you miss a week. Um, Michael's waving a basket, reminding everyone that he wants to make an offering of some kind. We use whatever we collect here for the class. So we'll use that money for our periodic potluck dinners or to bring in somebody special or whatever we're able to do. And we try to kind of keep it keep it varied. Now I'm not supposed to tell you this. Is this off? No. Give it to me. Yeah. Not next week, but December 11th, uh, 